I'm Paul, and this is the Notion Pain of Scale podcast. Today, today, the battle of the Notion cyclists. No, <laughs> no, I'm going to let Stephen announce who it is, but we're going to expand on a concept that we talked about within episode P302 that was released in September 2019, the Three Horizons. So, Stephen, take it away. Yeah, that was with Dennis Poir, who's now the CEO of Copper. And um, this is really framing up the thinking and the thought process that goes into building a global category leader. And we spoke in the previous episode about building category-defining companies with Naomi. And for anyone, the journey from startup to global category leader is a daunting task. From a million or less in revenues, when we might invest to 100 million in revenues or more in less than 10 years, I mean, frankly, it's quite ridiculous. But it's what VCs hope to find, and it's what many founders plan to achieve. Lots of challenges along that journey. But what we want to focus on today is the strategic challenges of balancing short-term operational excellence with long-term transformation and category dominance. One of the most enduring frameworks for this is the McKinsey's Three Horizons, which describes exactly that, optimizing for current performance while maximizing future opportunities. And our guide to this topic is my good friend and colleague, Chris Topman, who's a general partner at Notion. Chris, welcome. Good to be back. Paul, I hope you're well from all of your travels and great to be talking to you, Stephen. Travels, so, travels with a virus is not travel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I travel by listening to you and watching you cycle. Traveling vicariously. I mean, the interesting thing about Chris, I mean, there's so many things that's interesting about this man. He's an original thinker in a quite traditional industry that is venture capital. You know, he's constantly challenging himself and others to disrupt and reinvent this industry. And he does the same thing with the companies he invests in. You know, as an entrepreneur and a company builder, he brings fresh thinking and different perspectives, bags and bags of ambition. And he uses the Three Horizon framework to help the founders he invests in build big, beautiful and enduring companies. I lifted that from your bio, Chris. It was a great phrase. And I should just say, as a friend, he's been an inspiration to me. I mean, he's without doubt been the single greatest influence of my working life. But I won't carry on with that because I might start to get emotional. Chris, enough of that. Welcome to the podcast again. And thank you very much. Let's just jump straight in. Tell us about Three Horizon Thinking. Well, I think it was first published in the late 90s in a book called The Alchemy of Growth. And as you said earlier, it was picked up quite significantly by McKinsey. And the way I kind of think about it in those early days is it was, you know, you're talking about McKinsey's markets to deal with very big. In my case, I would think about them as big and boring and having a maybe a dominant position in a market. You know, they've underinvested in innovation or they're unable to unlock the innovation. And so I think, as you said before, it was around defending their kind of core business and then create ways to sort of open up opportunity in new markets or future markets and so on and so forth. Whereas, you know, where I tend to apply it is obviously in the startup world where, you know, the startup, quite frankly, I may have a deck that's got, you know, 10 or 12 people in it and they have very little revenue and they've got a market thesis around solving a problem and they've got a product or proposition that they believe solving that and you know and I'm thinking okay that's exciting but how is this market going to play out through time how are you going to build you know huge amounts of traction and market share and at some point is the market that you're selling into or a broader market from where you end up is that market going to be running on your rails you know do you do you can start to consolidate a market position 
so that the way that that industry is running at some point in the future is running on the rails that this this startup has built. And so it's easier to think about that over different time periods or different horizons. And it makes it easier to debate different kind of scenarios. In the first horizon, how are you executing on the promise of that thesis and to customers? And then in the third horizon, are you able to imagine how that market operates? And then there's a normally a very gray area in between between the two. And it also brings to bear, you know, the different types of people that are needed in order to kind of facilitate and execute those completely different time horizons and the skills that are required to do that. And how does that come together over time? So I love the sessions. It can be quite provocative. It's very creative. You know, ultimately, most people are dominated right by, you know, the execution that is ahead of them, the the sprint, you know, whether that's from a product roadmap perspective, whether that's from a sales market execution perspective. But as an investor, where we're trying to build very, very big outcomes, you know, we really need to kind of understand how this becomes a a very, very big company with a lot of enduring qualities. Is that why it talks to you so profoundly? And and I've, you know, I've heard you describe this approach with many of your founders. What is it that really kind of engages you about Three Horizon thinking? Well, I suppose, you know, I've got a 30-odd year career and I've given up many careers. I, I've worked in five different verticals or types of business models within my career. So I guess I have a propensity to be restless quite naturally and spend a lot of time about thinking about how to disrupt, radically change, adapt, you know, how companies are working or how markets are operating. And so my natural self is in that friction between the now and the future. So at its first instance, it's because I think it's a natural space for me to thrive. And I think as soon as I feel like the rails for Horizon 1 are laid and people really in execution mode, then I've already sort of switched off and have moved my own mind. I might I might be in the board meeting of the now, but I'm actually in the mindset of the future, if that makes any sense. So I think it's really a natural area for me. I love that. The board meeting of the now, the mindset of the future. Quite contrary to some of your being present Buddhist thinking, but I but I do understand that. And I think, you know, you have to be able to embrace the cognitive dissonance to think about these two things at any one time. So can you give some practical advice of how founders can embrace this approach? Well, the first thing is that 99.99% of everything they're doing is pretty much in horizon one, right? And so they've conceived a problem in a the market. They've thought about building a product. They've got some people together. They've built that product. They're figuring out, you know, how to sell that product. And, you know, they're getting different degrees of success. Or they've been doing that for a number of years and they've got lots of customers and revenue. And that's kind of who they are and what they do, which means... Therefore, it's inferring that there's a whole different way of thinking that's not currently in there, you know, either booked into their diary or the way that they're considering how the business might evolve through time. So if you take Amazon, for example, Horizon One was selling books online. That's not where it ended, right? It didn't end with selling books online. It was just an easy product to get a huge amount of inventory and a place to start. And that business has adapted and changed and disrupted many markets, completely unrelated to e-commerce since. And if you take, so for example, someone in the Notion portfolio, if you take something like Triptease, their original hypothesis is that 50% of all of the bookings for hotels go through online travel agencies. And therefore, 
hotels are building hotels, they're fitting out hotels, they're employing lots of people into hotels. But one of the biggest parts of the economics just goes to a website for the transaction for that order, and it doesn't go to the hotel. That's sort of economically tough. So they believed that they could drive direct bookings to the hotel website, and they created a product for that. And it drove huge market share, i.e. in Horizon 1. But once they got about 20% market share in their defined market, they realized that they had a data advantage there, which would decrease. But actually, if you looked up the value chain of that market, there's an entirely new market, which is getting traffic to those hotel websites. If they could build a data asset there, that would be really unique because you'd have on-site data and traffic data. And so all of the competitors normally line up in the value chain. So they're competing with people for how to optimize the website. And there is a whole new set of competitors of how to optimize traffic eyeballs to the website. They could do it across two. And that data advantage, they felt, would give them a competitive advantage in where they were originally playing. And it would give them a completely new market, a new product to their existing customers, if you like, and those existing prospects. That would be extremely competitive and hard to compete with from the people that were getting eyeballs to hotel websites. And that's what they did. And it multiplied their market size by five and drove huge amounts of growth for the business. So this is kind of an example of moving from a first horizon to a second horizon. It's interesting that you mentioned earlier about the second horizon is often the gray area between short-term operational execution the next 12 to 24 months and long-term kind of monopoly position. And Dennis Foire, when we talked to him last year, he says this midterm transition is the hardest. Yeah. Why is that? I think it's because typically to be really great in Horizon 1, you have to hire a bunch of people that have got great pedigree at high replication. Everything that they're doing is well thought through and designed. They're building organizations more like armies. There's playbooks and high replication And they're building consistency and growth capacity into selling a defined product to a defined market opportunity, a defined product to a defined market opportunity, a defined product to a defined... It's high replication. Well, those people tend not to be as good at thinking around corners. If you think about a visionary, people would say, well, we've got this really visionary founder. Everyone's inner voice is saying, oh, my God, right, I bet, you know, they could find it really tough to execute, right? Because, you know, maybe they're really visionary, but they're not so good at high replication. And then the mirror image of that is people that are really good at high replication execution. Maybe they're not so good at envisioning the way the industry should be operating in the future. And so I actually think it's a human capital issue. I think it's the way that people kind of work together And if you take Google, I think it was even at or around the IPO, they talked about the 70-20-10 model, which is 70% of their money will go in driving the ads business, which was pretty much 99% of their revenue. And then 20% of their money will go in Horizon 2. And that's thinking about how to do adjacent products and adjacent markets. And then 10% would go on moonshots or loon shots. So they kind of embedded the model in a way, in the way that they thought about the economics of their business. And they knew, they knew that if they continued to just spend 99% of their money on the ads business, then ultimately they would start to go into some sort of decline. And they knew that they needed to invest in uh, different thinking and different ways of, of doing business, leveraging off the asset and the market position, strong market position that Google had, right? So, but I think it's actually a human capital issue. I think it's the fact that you need to be able to reconcile the difference between the creative side of the organization, the inventive, the experimental side of the organization, 
with this sort of high execution, high repetition, high cadence organization. And it's being able to sort of get those different people, different parts of the organization to sort of coalesce together around creating different types of outcomes. Do you think it's possible to kind of select people, talent for an ability to understand three horizons and to test if they have this ability to project themselves amongst these three different horizons? And, and conversely, do you, I know maybe you're going to spill the beans that you don't want to, but do you, as Chris Tutman, when you are reviewing companies you might want to invest in, do you also test this ability of founders to understand this three horizons? I think the first one is I think you 100% can hire for different horizons and you can think about people being strong in different sorts of disciplines. I think in large organizations, generally, they've wrung a lot of the creativity out of the organization, which is why McKinsey found the model adopted so enthusiastically. Yeah. <laughs> What are they doing? They're, they're selling to extremely large, maybe monopolistic organizations about their inability to innovate, right? Which is their inability to envision a different way that companies, markets, products can operate in the future, right? Mm -hmm. So... I fundamentally believe that you, you can hire. I think for founders, I think it's very, very interesting. And this is the, this is the sort of conversation that I do have with founders. And saying, look, I think the reason why I invested in you, one of the reasons is because you envisioned the fact that there was a problem in a market that you wanted to solve. And then you got some people together and you built a product to do that. And then we found each other. And I backed you because of that ability to envision a different way of working that was going to be meaningful and that would gain critical attention and traction and that you got, if you like, rational people to do an irrational thing and join your high-risk startup and go on that mission with you. And now what you're doing is you're building a very complex organization, a very complex strategy, and you're hiring people that have got great pedigree to, if you like, crank the handles of execution. Now, did I invest in you because I bet on the fact that you can run highly complex organizations or did I bet on you because you can envision the way that markets operate differently? Well, I think I made the bet on you because of the latter. So I want you to have a highly complex but well-run organization. But what I really want you to do is I want you to find how do you put more growth capacity into the business? How do you create more market pull? How do you create not only market share in the thing that you originally, how do you take that advantage and that position that you've got in the market and start to, if you like, pick off a lot of unmet needs that that market might have? How do you build an architecture that's sufficiently open that when you have this dominant market position, And you have, therefore, this unique data. You know, how do you make that data open to other market participants that are desperately keen to get to market share? So those are the sorts of things. I'm kind of trying to test their understanding about the sort of CEO or the sort of founder that they want to be. And I'm suggesting to them that actually the reason why they were so exciting to invest in originally shouldn't get lost. It's not because they were brilliant at running big organizations. It was because they were brilliant at understanding that certain problems need to get solved and how they get solved. And if they can do that from a market perspective, then you can build very, very, very big companies. And so I encourage them to resource in a certain kind of way and free them up so that they can work on some of the kind of future problems, whether that's the 10% bit at Google or the 20% bit at Google. But it shouldn't be them focused 100% on horizon one and look at a board meeting how much of the board meeting is based on how we're doing it's like a sort of checklist scorecard of have we sold how's the product roadmap going and how's sales going relative to what we said we were going to do 
you know, how is that machinery? Is it cranking towards forecast, at forecast, above forecast? Well, where's the bit in the bull meeting, which is about how are we trading off adjacent markets? Are we selling an existing product to existing prospects? That's what we're doing. Are we selling an existing product to new markets that we haven't gone into yet? Are we building new products for our existing customers or are we building new products for new markets? Where's all of that kind of conversation in the board meeting? And I just, quite often, I just don't see enough of that from a lot of the companies that we analyse, if that makes any sense. Can you give us some examples of, you already talked about the Triptease guys, but founders or firms that you do see doing this really well? Well, I'll tell you what I will do. Because I used the Amazon example earlier on, I'll tell you about being a bookseller. So when Amazon got into books, what happened to the rest of the book market? Now, there's an interesting thought. Imagine trying to sell books after Amazon's been selling books, right? I did some research on this. And the, and the bookseller that has the royal warrant in the UK, so that's the bookseller that the queen buys her books from, if you like. How did they pivot after several years, 10 years of online, of the price, the value of a book to be bought being crushed by online? What is it that they sell? And it's very interesting because it's the opposite of being the large dominant business. So it's the sort of get big, get niche or get out, right? So in the niche market, when you're forced to think, so for those that are listening where it's thinking, well, I, I don't see the fact that I can get an industry to run on my rails. There's already somebody that's too ahead. They're too well-funded. What do I do? Well, it tends to be sort of get niche, which tends to be you're going to sell a much more client, intimate, complex solution for more money. And so the bookseller with the Royal Warrant What they sell is they sell libraries to very, very rich people with first editions. So instead of selling a book, a first edition book for 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, they're selling $1 million to $5 million libraries of first editions. And I, I find that absolutely amazing, that in all of this disruption, there is always a place for a smart entrepreneur to sort of carve out a piece of ground that they can defend. So, you know, not everyone can build these huge global businesses, right? It's not a crowd of people, it's a bunch of outliers. But even those that are on the wrong side of the equation, there is room for them to be extremely entrepreneurial and carve out a brilliant and unique business for themselves. What a great story. I'm going to have to read up on that one myself. Pitfalls, where does this go wrong? What do you see founders and leaders falling into? Well, I think it's where you get the sort of balance wrong. It's where you've got too much vision and Horizon 3 thinking, occupying too much of people's time. And don't forget, Horizon 3 is quite visionary. It's a vision that quite often you, you never get to. Drones are still not delivering to my doorstep, right? I haven't seen an Amazon drone yet dropping off my boxes or an Uber drone dropping off my... So, you know, some of the sort of Horizon 3 vision about how things are going to operate in the future is always on the never-never and never turns up. So I think where it's wrong is where there's an imbalance between the amount of time, the amount of money, or the people that are charged with operating in those different horizons. There's no cookie-cutter way to build companies to kind of be an entrepreneur. You've got to find your own way. So I think it's generally when it's out of balance. Either it's all Horizon 1, I think is fundamentally flawed, clearly you know, I'm designed to build highly repeatable execution into the businesses that we invest in. I, and I do, and that's part of the mission, but it's also how we adapting through time to take advantage of that market position to make gains in unmet needs of existing customers or take existing products to new markets. And so sometimes in those step changes is the most commonly understood areas, which is really about the inability to execute in new markets. Okay, so selling an existing product in a new market is quite often a bit of a graveyard, of course. 
But it's that imbalance. So I think it's an imbalance of focus, either too much or too little, or it's the execution of the new markets, an existing product to a new market or a new product that doesn't meet its expectation. And an example in there would be Message Labs. You know, we built Message Labs in email security. We ended up with a product architecture which had something like seven or eight different products in it. But when you looked at our revenue, 95% of our revenue was from two products. So there's a lot of product innovation, which maybe helped our win rate of the core product. But actually, the new products never as a revenue share, a share of the overall revenue mix, never really made a massive impact, if you see what I mean. Whether that's success or failure, without them, the win rate maybe have been lower. So it's, sometimes it's difficult to tell. But generally, the expectation of those new products was far greater than the revenue that they actually achieved. How can people learn more about this? particular things that you've been reading, books, resources? Well, I think the original book still has a lot of relevance today. Like I said, it's The Alchemy of Growth. It's written by, I think there are three authors in there. The stuff on the web is mostly for larger companies. And the go-to blog that I would recommend is at skylance.org, How to Use Three Horizons. To me, that is the closest I've got to something that is, you know, the fool's guide to Three Horizons. Thank you, Chris. I'll add one more recommended reading. You mentioned Loon Shots. It's a fascinating book written by Safi Bukul. And interestingly, this is one of the go-to pieces of literature that one of our portfolio companies, Muse, uses to help them think about how they develop a business that is able to deliver constant innovation and operational excellence. Because as you say, it's the interface of those two things. And he takes a very interesting perspective on it. I hope to get to speak to him one day. I'm sure he'll return your calls. <laughs> I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure he will. Chris, it's been a pleasure as ever. Some great sound bites in there, some really interesting analogies. I will remember the Queen's bookseller story. Thank you ever so much. No, it's a pleasure as always. <laughs>